If you have a Bible with you, do turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we'll open up in just a moment. Um, can I just apologize to whoever's Bible I stole over here? I mean, stealing a Bible, that's probably not really what to do, is it? Um, but I will give it back to you once I have read from it. Is it yours, Eunice? Is it not yours? Oh, well, someone's. Thank you, whoever it was. Uh, so Lewis, a couple of weeks ago, was in chapter 7, and he was explaining how the promises of God made to King David were filled with major hints of another king to come, a son of David, who would be better, and who would not only be for Israel, but for all nations. Now, spoiler alert, most of you probably picked up on the hints already, particularly if you were there, and that is that skip forward a thousand years of Bible history and story, and you will encounter this better king, and his name was Jesus. If chapter 7 is about the coming king, chapter 8 is about the kingdom that the king brings. You cannot separate the king from the story of the kingdom in the same way that you couldn't separate Steve Jobs from the story of Apple or Vladimir Putin from the story of modern-day Russia. Just like God's promises to David as king, the kingdom of David that God establishes is full of major hints about the kingdom that was to come through Jesus, the king who has come and whose kingdom is advancing across all the earth. And so, I'm about to preach to you in what is really a prayer. And that prayer is for God's kingdom to come in all the earth, verses one through six, to make all things new, verses seven through 12, to overcome evil, verses 13 and 14, and to establish peace. And we should be finished in time for dinner. So turn to 2 Samuel 8, and I'm gonna read the text. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob, Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down twenty-two thousand of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and to the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took great quantity of bronze. Then too, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer. 
He sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two Joram, brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, son of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zuriah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and Pelethites. And David's sons were royal advisors. Lots of names in there that were very difficult to pronounce. We pray for God's kingdom to come in all the earth. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, I think it can be easy to imagine that all they really did was put their feet up, uh, you know, in some natural hot tub with a pina colada in hand and just chilled until the fall. But they didn't sit all day just relaxing. God had given them a job description. He said to them, Genesis 128, that they were to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and over every living creature and mo- that moves on the ground. They were to work together to look after and make the best of all of God's creation. They were to take communities of people, see them multiply, work the land, and see it be fruitful, to steward it well. God had given them this vision for the whole earth. It was kind of like a first temple where Adam and Eve worshipped and everything they did, all to the glory of God. And it was also like a first kingdom where they bowed down to the true king, to God. Sadly, it didn't last. In the beginning of every single sadness and suffering that we see was Adam and Eve's decision to do things their own way and not God's. Adam and Eve found themselves turfed out into the wilderness, separated from God. And suddenly, life was not all that it was supposed to be. They were exiled from his kingdom in a foreign land. But it was no surprise that God had a plan. Skip forward to the calling of Abraham, Abraham and Sarai, who would become Abraham and Sarah. And he said that their descendants would bring blessings to the nations. Not just to this nation that was to come from them. And he would give them the land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites 
Canaanites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, that might not mean much to you. But actually, what we're looking at here in chapter 8 is modern day, in David's time, language for the same thing. And it's interesting to me that the writer doesn't use a chronological recording here of what's gone on. So David's victories, which are recorded for us in chapter 8, are not all in chronological order. It's a kind of record of all of his victories, but it seems that the emphasis is actually on the points of a compass. To the west, they take the land inhabited by the Philistines. So if you knew the geography and you heard where these people had come from that he has great victories over, you're starting to think, oh, hang on a minute, like they've moved west, okay. And then to the east, they inhabit the land of the Moabites. And to the north, they take the land inhabited by the Zohabites. And to the south, the land inhabited by the Edomites. God has given them the land that he had always promised them from the time of Abraham. And it stretched north, south, east, and west. He had given them this spatial, roomy place for them to be. Now, there are two ways that you can describe the earth or that the earth is described in the Old Testament, okay? One of them is like horizon to horizon, where the sun sets, uh, where the sun rises and where the sun sets. It's, it's kind of the regional definition, the earth, okay? And often that's what we see when we see that word earth in the Old Testament. But sometimes it is used for Nations, all the nations, the whole world, the whole cosmos even sometimes, the heavens and the earth. When King David claims all the land that he's promised, he pushes north, south, east and west. The earth is that kind of immediate sense, horizon to horizon. It's what they would have understood by the earth, the the local region. It's theirs. The land that God had promised them is theirs. They were a people set within the boundaries of this special place. It was to be Eden-like, and there was to be a restoration of a place of worship, of a kingdom that looked like Eden. When Jesus comes along, though, suddenly, those boundaries are no more. He put the kingdom inside the believers' hearts, and sends his followers to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so what does Jesus do there when he calls people to go? He's saying, no longer is there a boundary to the kingdom of God, but that like that first vision of Eden for Adam and Eve to fill the earth, we too are called to fill the earth with the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors of Christ, the Bible calls us. And that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Jesus reigns in us, this great king, the better king, through the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, 
Do you see that? Christ the King, who cannot be separated from the kingdom, lives in you. And you have been called to fill the earth with the kingdom of God. And so where the king is, so too is the kingdom. And that is why we can confidently say to you that you have all you need, all you need to affect the world around you for good. At Glasgow Grace, we don't believe that only a few chosen people do the ministry. It's not people with the mics, okay? It's not the people just with the guitars. They're great. Really great, Andy. But it's all of us. Every single one of us. And that's why we want to be a church planting church. It's why we want to see Grace Communities fill this city. Our hope is that Grace Grace Communities can increasingly become kingdom outposts, looking outward to the areas they exist. Our mission together is something that Lewis has been working really hard on to try and resource us this term to help us to begin that process, to be more and more on mission together. And along with all of the rest of God's people, we want to be a multiplying church that sends people to plant new churches in Glasgow and beyond, across Scotland, across Europe, and across the world. So come, Lord. Fill our hearts with dreams of new grace communities in every area. Come and fill this nation with church plants. Fill this continent with new churches. Restore churches. May your kingdom come and may your kingdom break out. The king has come and where the king is, is his kingdom. Jesus says, doesn't he, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. Go therefore. The king is sending you to make disciples of all nations, followers of Jesus everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He goes with you and he will never fail you. And where God's kingdom breaks out, he is making all things new. Verses seven through 12. Do you notice that when Israel is victorious over each of the nations, they come home with spoils, with gold, with silver, with bronze, with chariots and shields. Now, interestingly, David and the other leaders don't just like build some sort of trophy room in, uh, yes, like some sort of epic sports star. You ever seen those programs that go around the famous people's houses? If it's like a record producer, they've got like gold records all over this room. Or if it's a sports star, they've got all their trophies and medals. Well, they didn't do that. We, we actually saw there, didn't we, in verse 11, Am I right? King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. He dedicates everything that 
has been received, won in their victories to God. And then we see elsewhere in Chronicles 129 that the leaders in Israel take all these spoils and commit them to the building of the temple. This place in the center of Israel was made by them taking the riches that they had won in battle and melting them down and using them for their intended purpose because everything is made to the glory of God. It's being restored, remade for the glory of God in the temple. David said, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. We want to be like that, don't we? People who recognize that everything belongs to the Lord and willing to do whatever it is that he's calling us to do with it to his glory for his worship. And so I want us to keep that in mind when we have this special offering today and we're thinking about the people of Ukraine and how we can be of benefit to them. One way, one way that we can love and do good and bring glory to God is to be Christ-like in the way that we are generous with what we have. To be like King David, more so be like King Jesus who was willing to give himself up for us. And now, just like David did with these treasures of the nations, Jesus is actually restoring us, not just our things. Gentiles made in the image of God, that's us, who had gone the way of Adam and turning to him as worshipers again in his kingdom through Jesus, through what he did on the cross. And we are made temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that moment where Jesus walks into the temple and he sees that the temple isn't being used as a house of prayer anymore? It's being used as a den of robbers. People are selling stuff and commercializing the very place where they're supposed to give everything to the glory of God. And he starts throwing over the tables. He clears them out with a whip. Do you also remember that moment where Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles? And he says, out of you will flow rivers of living water, a bit like those rivers that we should be remembering in that moment that, f- that flowed out of Eden. Those rivers that were supposed to then be used to, to bring life across the earth. Well, you are a temple. You are a kingdom. You are the one like Eden who God has chosen to put his spirit in and rivers of living water flow out of you. And so now you are the people that God has called to bring blessing to the nations. He has made you new. He has remade you through Christ by his righteousness and poured out his spirit upon you. And in the last days, Revelation tells us the old order of things will pass away. And King Jesus will say from his throne, I am making 
everything new. So you have been made new. It's been declared over you. Sometimes you will realize, oh, yeah, I'm, I know, I know God's made me new, but, but I'm not completely the person that I'm supposed to be yet. That's true. But there is one day when it will be made complete and all things, every single thing will be made new to his glory. Everything will be as it was meant to be. But right now, you're like that kingdom outpost because Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. He's declared you holy. He's made you a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can be confident that he is in you and with you. And by grace, we go on day by day looking to be more like these ambassadors, these outposts of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom come to make all things new. And God's kingdom come to overcome evil, verses 13 and 14. Hasn't uh, Captain Ukraine done so well in leading the Ukrainian people? President Zelensky has been extraordinary in this past week. You would never know that only a couple of years ago, he was an actor, a comedian in a sitcom. And now he's this extraordinary leader. Well, in a speech last night, one of his impassioned speeches, he said, we must drive this evil out. Amen. But isn't it interesting that to talk about evil is taboo until something really awful happens? In his preface to the Screwtape letter, C.S. Lewis said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with, some, with the same delight. I have no doubt that in our relatively comfortable part of the world and in the period of history that we are in, we are fooled into not giving Satan too much thought, but almost no thought. But as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Evil is a real thing. The devil is real. His demons are real. And we need to be aware of that. We are in a spiritual battle. There is more going on than just guns and bullets. God didn't only tell Abraham that he would bless the nations through him and give him this land. But in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, he said, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Now, if you've read through this section of scripture before, you will be familiar with Baal, who is mentioned here in chapter eight, this God worshipped on the high places. Now, Baal's not explicitly mentioned, 
It is actually from verses uh, 8 through 17, I think it is, where Hadadezer is given all the attention, this victory over Hadadezer. Why is this victory over Hadadezer given so much attention? Well, I think it's probably because Hadad literally means sky god, Baal, another name for Baal. And Adizer means helper. So they look to the sky god, to Baal, for help. And Baal and the Ashtoreths, the places, places where they would go and worship this god, if you read through this section of scripture, you will see is this representation of evil and, and the nation's that are railing against God. And so the complete victory of King David over his enemies pointed to a complete victory of Jesus over sin, Satan, and death. Because when Baal is mentioned, really, it's like a mini Satan. And so here, we have this spiritual battle going on as well as a physical one, which is represented in the physical battle. God always has the victory. And in the end, Jesus was entirely victorious over Satan on the cross. King David and the kingdom of Israel didn't just receive the promised land. Their victory was complete. Israel was unrivaled. At last, the promised land belonged to the people of God and their enemies had been stripped of their power to challenge them. Praise God that in the better king, Paul can say to the church in Colossae that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We have the victory in Christ over Satan, sin, and death. We can be confident of that. And that's why C.S. Lewis says that we shouldn't make too much of them. Because Jesus has won. He is victorious. And he lives in you. Do you remember what we just said a moment ago? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so when we're going and spreading the kingdom of God, we are in a spiritual battle, but we're in one where we're advancing by the power of Christ, the King of kings, the one who lords over Satan. And one day we'll cast him into hell forever. You can be confident in spiritual battle because Jesus is alive in you. Jesus' victory is complete. If you put your trust in Jesus, the enemy has no claim, no power over you. Do not listen to his lies. His lies, he, remember, he is a father of lies. And Jesus is the truth. Whenever you hear those lies, turn to Jesus. He's the truth. He's the king. He's had the victory. And he is with you. And finally, the last part of our prayer, to establish peace. God's kingdom come to establish peace. Now our passage finishes, well, it finishes in verse 15. There are a few more verses there, which I'm actually not really dealing with. David ruled over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. 
And that is true. There was a, a moment of time where David rules and the people see the king and adopt the ways of the kingdom. And this king was a man after God's own heart. And so they see something beautiful take place, a godly kingdom where justice reigns. But as we will find out in weeks to come, it didn't last. If you know the story, you'll know why. But the good news is this. In the final moments with his disciples, before he was arrested, Jesus said this. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So without that complete victory that Jesus had over Satan and spiritual powers, we could not be sure that peace would last. But because he has, peace will last. When Jesus returns, peace will last. So when we put our hope in Jesus, even when we're in the most fiery troubles, we can hide in Christ who is our peace. He says, you will have trouble. So as Christians, sadly, wars and rumors of wars do not come as a surprise to us. They are sad and they are brutal and we despise them. We pray against them in Jesus' name. We pray for peace. We pray for his kingdom come now as it is in heaven. But we also know that trouble will be in this world. And so then, our response is to pray for peace, but it is also to do whatever we can to represent the kingdom of God. And so whatever is within our power to promote peace, whether that is giving today to the special offering, or whether that is praying, or whether that is doing something practical in which you have found that you can do to help, or that is to bring peace to your family home, or that is to bring peace to a team that you're a part of in work or in sports, which seems so trivial, but actually the principles are the same. And if we want to be a people of peace, and we want to really be the kind of people that stand up to injustice, then we've got to do it in the small things as well as the big. Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. The good news, one day Jesus will return and he will renew all things for worship because that's what we're made for. Even the metal used for instruments of war will be renewed for worship and turned into instruments of worship. 
Isaiah 2 says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord's. That is a call to worship, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from, his, from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords, put into that tanks, put into that rockets, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He is king, and we need his kingdom to advance. A prayer for God's kingdom to come in all the earth, to make all things new, to overcome evil and establish peace. King Jesus, we pray for these things. We thank you, Lord, that you have overcome and that you will return. In the meantime, help us, Lord. Help us to be a people who are about your kingdom, who influence for good, to be a people who are committed to making all things new. Thank you that you've made us new in Christ. And Lord, we pray against the evil one. Push him back. Push the darkness back with your glorious light, we pray. Interject, Lord. Come change minds and hearts. Lift eyes to see your glory and to fall face down in repentance. Bring comfort and peace. Establish your ways on the earth. Establish your justice and peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.